Well, uh, I was going to therapy before it was cool. <laughs> I want you to know. Long before we started making this documentary. Oh, you know, that's, that's the reason why Omar is able to be so, so stoked is because he, he, had a, he got the jump on this. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Welcome back to part two, Zadoobity Doo. Of We're Totally Not Okay. The podcast about the mass culture intersection. <laughs> what? I just had it in the last one. You oh my God, I'm so supposed to say well that, that that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's <so> fine. <laughs> also, it's not part two of our podcast, it's part two of the interview that we had with <laughs> okay. Omar Mualem you know and Dylan Reese Howard. I who... feel attacked right now. <laughs> <laughs> Try it again. Okay, I'm still leaving this in, but sure, go. Wait, for are it. you doing it or am I doing it? We're gonna let's do it together in one voice via oh, FaceTime. God. Oh god, this is Ready? not going to go well. Ready? One, two, okay. three, go. Hello, welcome back. And welcome. <laughs> you were adding a hello. It's fine. There has always been a hello. Hello and welcome back to we're totally not okay, but that's okay. Wait, the my headset's falling out. Did you start? <laughs> oh my god. Guys, you know what you're listening to. Moving on. Yeah. Done. No no intro. You you get it. Last time we were talking <laughs> about the documentary Digging in the Dirt, which is available on CBC Gem, and we are still talking about it because we had such a long and poignant conversation with Omar and Dylan about the documentary they made on addiction, suicide, and men's mental health in the Alberta oil sands industry. And... In this episode, we get to go behind the scenes of the filmmakers themselves. We get to uncover their emotional journeys throughout the process of making this film. We also unravel that yarn of how we think about work, how we think about productivity, if productivity is worth more than life itself. Not sure anybody is going to openly come out and say that, but you know, you take a look at what our economy has been like for the past hundreds of years and how much our identities are intrinsically tied into our occupational endeavors. It's fascinating, especially in these isolating times, we're now just starting to come out of what has been, what, four months of pure isolation and trying to figure out how to reintegrate ourselves into this new system that is so fragile, being hit with another wave of numbers spiking, uh, in regards to the coronavirus, but everybody's wanting to get back to work. Everybody wants to get back to something that has them tied into our economic waves. So even though we've had a whole bunch of time to reflect on how work affects us mentally, it's cool to talk a little bit more about how Omar and Dylan uncover the fact that there might be a bit more of a culture of silence around men's mental health in particular, given our hegemonic ideological structures about masculinity itself. So we're diving into all of that and more with Omar and Dylan part two. So it's interesting to hear you say you can't just slap up a phone number and call it a day because at the end of the film, you slap up a phone number. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we did that at the. We did that at the end. It's not. 
like the documentary isn't like digging in the dirt call this number <laughs> credits <laughs> i think the phone number is there for people who are in acute distress too although it's funny you know that i haven't really yeah i mean the, the phone number is there because um because of the contagion effect um which is that what like even when you approach a story about suicide and there there are other stories there are other types of topics like um uh mass killings for example as well there's a contagion effect that is you know well studied well documented that is added to that you have to do this with care and you have to take proper precautions to make sure that anyone reading it watching it listening to it uh will not um who who is vulnerable will not act on um you know, will will not act on either self-harm or whatever it is that this might prompt. Um, even if you think that you are, um, you know, even if you think that you are being extra cautious, having that phone number there or at the end of an article, just making sure that it's visible um, is, I guess, it's the least you can do to make sure that someone who maybe is vulnerable to um, hurting themselves or others uh, can sort of have a little bit more presence of mind to understand there's more than one way that they can approach this. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, that's, um, you, you do need both. It's not about just slapping that phone number up on a billboard on a Bristol board at work. Uh, but you do still need to slap that number up. You need to provide mm-hmm. a resource so that the person who at the end is still going great, but what do I do? They now have some sort of course of action to take. Um, I participated in a forum on uh, journalism and mental health and, and, uh, and on suicide. Um, and it's called the, the Mindset Reporting on Mental Health. Um, the forum is called the Journalism forum on trauma and mental health, I believe, but they put out this little booklet here called mindset. And, um, it is a, it's a, it's a quick reference guide on what to do as a, a journalist, as a storyteller, um, when tackling stories of trauma and mental health and suicide, everything from your interview approach, making sure that your subjects feel uh, safe and taken care of, making sure that you're not re-traumatizing them, uh, right down to ensuring that you do not trigger um, self-harm in the audience itself. What are some of the tactics that you guys use? Like, what were the considerations that you put into this? You obviously put a shitload of thought into this, so you might as well share it. My instinct is, as far as editing this thing uh, and not having this journalistic background was... I mean, I think I was just largely, like, as I, as I do with, like, like every film I make, I'm just kind of led, leading with my empathy. Um, but, uh, yeah, but, I mean, Omar Omar's had to write, he's been writing about this for a lot longer. Contextualizing it, making sure that um, you are not... Uh, rushing or interrogating your subjects, making sure that they are comfortable, giving them the options not to answer things. Um, uh, Being being careful not to romanticize um, suicide. Uh, You know, that that happens a lot when when celebrities um, kill themselves. Um, When Robin Williams died by suicide, there was a, a very 
large contagion uh, effect that, uh, again, is well documented. And um, it was largely in in places where the media um, had uh, acted quite irresponsibly or in places where their proximity to the, that media is quite close. So um, there was a really interesting study of the Canadian media versus the U.S. media's approach to covering Robin Williams' suicide. And the United States... Uh, has scored much, much, much lower on the experts who study this uh, and saw quite a bit of a, a, a spike in suicides um, that correlated with that. Canada's media took a much, much more careful approach to it, but still saw a spike in suicides because we consume U.S. media. Yeah, I was I was going to ask if you if you wanted to talk about the Coker thing, Omar, but I know that maybe it's a bit of a is that a bit oh, of a yeah. at, at this point or I mean no. it's just kind of like such a perfect Im- uh, image. I mean, it's, it's you know it's a, from a writing perspective too, it's a perfect metaphor for this uh, situation. But then it sort of violates one of the rules as far as being you know making. Sure I not- I got called out at a at a I got called out at um, a Canadian. Um, what is it? Canadian Mental Health and Suicide Prevention Association conference. I can't remember the name. I can look it up if you would like me to. But is this the, the conference that I that I filmed? Yeah, this one? yeah, yeah. And and Dylan like captured <laughs> this whole thing. I got, I got called out by one of the people who I believe was on the board or maybe one of the executives on uh, that association because in my article for BuzzFeed on this subject, I had talked about. Um, one particular suicide uh, by a worker. And I talked about in detail um, how he had killed himself, which is breaking one of the cardinal rules. Um, You don't go into the details. You're not supposed to. Um, And I also talked about how this one person's suicide has taken on a bit of a urban legend in the industry, how men who didn't know him, didn't work for the company, maybe even started working in the industry well after the incident occurred, the suicide occurred, um, how they heard about him and how it's taken on a life of its own. You know, there are variations of the story, but the one commonality is that when people hear this story their reaction isn't whoa that's unfathomable their reaction is like yeah it can get that bad out here i thought i i thought that was important to understanding the um psychology of uh men in work camps i still think it was i don't think that i acted carelessly um the woman did not read my story for all she knows, she might think it was just like a, a short news story. Um, it was a 4,000, maybe 5,000 word um, narrative story that uh, treated people like humans, like you really get to know them. That mm-hmm. is my style of storytelling. And I believe that in um, when you are trying to bring people into... Uh, into another world, or rather, I believe that when you are trying to bring readers or viewers 
uh, into someone else's shoes, you need to really show them the world that they are living in. And uh, as in any society, the stories that we tell each other, the history that we tell each other, the folklore, whatever, that is a big part of understanding our environment. So I, I, I stand by that, but I understand why that made people um, very uncomfortable. Can you help me understand a little bit more? Because I think I'm so fully on your side with understanding the psychology of, of what is actually happening underneath it all that I would have a hard time defending myself if I were in your shoes. What were some of the things that they said specifically were wrong? Well, you know, I did, I didn't, um, I didn't really defend myself in, in, on that panel. I, um, because I, you know, I prefaced it by saying like, I don't know if this was the right call. You know, I don't do this. I don't report on this stuff enough to know with certainty whether it was, I, I believe that it was, um, worth including, but I might be wrong. And so, and you know, that's, that's, that's the truth. I, I might be wrong. Um, the, the story is that um, there was a man um, in the sort of early boom time who left the work camp when he was off shift, took a work truck to the site, and he climbed up a coker, which is a refinery tower, and he jumped and he took his life. And that is an extremely, that's a, quite a, a graphic, but also an extremely specific way to kill yourself um, for that demographic and for the people who might be reading it. So that's, that was her, uh, that's why she took umbrage with it. It essentially, it could inspire someone to do the same thing. And she might be right. But I believe that in the context of that story, this is not the opening scene of the story. This is, you know, pretty deep into it. Um, I believe that in the context of trying to understand the psychology of, um, of men in work camps, uh, I believe that, that that story tells you a lot. And I think that it, it only helps uh, readers empathize. And I think that it only helped humanize the men who know that story and, like I said, uh, see it as relatable. And I think it was when I used the term relatable that she kind of, she, she kind of, um, you know, stood up, grabbed the mic and, and uh, you know, put me in my spot. Would you say that when you're talking about the psychology actually that it's important to understand or maybe unearth or flip that rock over and take a look at the shadow side of it. Are you doing that because there's more of a risk by leaving something taboo and unexplored that it's not being dealt with? It almost reinforces that taboo by keeping it in the shadow? I can't say that I thought about it like that. Um, or the way that I thought about it was that, um, you know, the, the, the point of it is not that a man killed himself by jumping off coker. Uh, the point of it is that if you are a man working in this industry in up north, then you know this story and you have a spiritual connection to it and you understand it on a deep emotional level um, because it is, 
somewhat of a universal, universally alienating experience. That's the point of it. And, and also the, the, the visibility of that specific event and, and the poignancy of it, like, as you say, Omar, very directly sending a message, it seems, you know, if more people know about it and, and hold the industry accountable, then it could potentially, it has, the, it has the potential to save more lives than, than it, than it does to inspire copycat suicides. I mean, I, I feel, I mean, that's, that's, that's my position, I'm not on the, board of a fancy journalistic organization just a guy with a big heart <laughs> would you say maybe this is uh coming back to journalistic ethics again but would you say that you considered that sort of material through the lens of you mentioned glorification but it, i'm thinking about you know the whole if it bleeds it leads uh idea were you ever worried that it would be perceived as if you were presenting material to be gory and capture people's attention unethically? No. I mean, keep in mind that that the story, the example that I just um, shared is not in the documentary. Um, I think we might have touched on it a little bit with one of our experts, but very quickly kind of like, you know, moved on from there and, and uh, uh, it's, I mean, if, if we were to, if we were to share it, um, for one, I think it's more important that it comes from not the experts, but the people on the ground. But more importantly, I think it would, it would have to be done much more carefully with uh, all the facts. When you're making a documentary, you don't have as much time to, to say this is, this is folklore here, like set it up as mm -hmm. that, you know, people are going to watch it with, you know, maybe half their attention and they, yeah, so they might take it uh, more literally and kind of miss the the point of it. So, otherwise, you know, was was there a concern about being too graphic? I think there was a concern about being too sensational. I think you know, me and Dylan, I'm. I think we've talked about this. You know, we kind of held our breath a little bit, hoping that our interpretation was accurate. We believed it was, but because there's never been a fully, you know, recognized thorough report or study on this phenomenon, um, there has been in, in Australia, but not in Canada, you know, I feared that there was a possibility of confirmation bias. And I think that's, you know, I have that fear anytime I publish a story, write a story, um, or tell a story. And it's a good fear to have. That fear keeps you in check. It makes sure that you are extra careful. Because if you go in with a story that you want to tell and you're just kind of cocky about it and so convinced that it's the only version of the story that can be told, um, those are the people who... Uh, who get themselves in trouble. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, there's that, that, that was the fear and, and very quickly learned that um, the picture that we portrayed was accurate. I mean, the response that we received, I, I don't know if you personally got messages, Dylan, but like the, the, the week that that aired, I was getting one or two messages uh, a day from people who had watched it and, have lost 
a husband or brother or almost lost um, someone to suicide uh, because of mental health issues that were exacerbated by the factors that we lay out in this documentary. Uh, I don't get that as a journalist. I don't, people don't typically, you know, reach out to me to tell me how something affected them. Um, I might get, you know, one email per thing that I publish, but television being mass communications, um, it reached a lot of people and we were able to get that kind of feedback. Well, I mean, and, I'm not sure think about that call-in show you did even before the documentary. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was actually both incredibly tragic, but also very like, Oh, I mean, well, I mean, I, yeah. Uh, I think it was the, was it the Thursday before like the documentary went live on Friday. And I think Omar was part of a panel discussion on a, on a radio show here in here in Edmonton. It's the it's, Ryan Jasperson show. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the most, it's the most popular sort of uh, call call in, talk radio show in that time slot right for sure um it's kind of like blue collar alberta radio so omar was on there with a, a panel of uh, subjects from the documentary and they were just having a com- they're having a conversation about this issue um and uh, some of the subjects were relating their experiences very similar to how they do a documentary and i mean i guess it's not it's not a traditional i mean they didn't they didn't they didn't have they didn't go to the phones people weren't actually calling in but they had text feeds um and people so people were maybe felt even a little bit more comfortable sending in sending in text messages and the outpouring was was just an un- unbelievable just i mean i'll never i'll never forget i listened to that i listened to it recorded because i was on another shoot i listened to a recording of it later as i was driving home and uh and i just i i thought i mean there was one one woman's story in particular about how you know she hopes that um uh, she was she was talking about how her her she was, she was a little bit older and her son had had struggled with had, had worked on oil and gas and and had struggled with suicidality and had made it through and now had kids of his own and she was talking about how she was hoping that the fact that this conversation was happening was indicative of her grandson being able to grow up in um, in, a, in a safer and happier world. The the one that stood out for me was the um, was a was a woman whose uh, husband was in incredibly vulnerable position. If I remember correctly, he had um, uh, he was very depressed. He may have um, attempted suicide before, and she was uh, yeah. I mean, she was just deeply deeply concerned, and it was it was one of those moments where. Uh, we all felt pretty helpless. I mean, she was talking to us, documentary filmmaker and uh, a former oil guy who is, you know, just now in university to become a counselor and a current oil uh, uh, tradesman and the host of the show. And she was looking at us for direction. And and, I mean, there was, it was really tragic. Um, And I think the best that, you know, we could do was, give that phone number. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes that is actually the best thing that you can do is just remind people of this crisis line. Um, yeah, but I mean, like I said, it was a very tragic hour, but it was also very reassuring because I think it was, it was that moment when I realized that, uh, okay, we, we absolutely are, um, we told the right story and we're reaching the right people. We're reaching the people who need this. That uh, resource book that you had 
on mindset. Yeah, it's there's a ebook version of it that's free online. Um, it's called Mindset Reporting on Mental Health. Does it have anything in there for you as filmmakers? How do you handle those sorts of stressors? It's a good question. Yeah. It's probably at the very back of the book. <laughs> you didn't get that. For, well, then, it, regardless of the book, how do you to handle your own mental health on a grand scheme or even just particularly on this path while you're creating a project that is so sensitive and that must be, well, that is clearly having this kind of feedback that affects you so emotionally? I'm not too affected by it. I have to be completely honest. Um, I learn a lot about myself. I like. I, I feel like it's always good. It's always a good thing to have more information because um, I guess with more information just comes more, um, uh, what you want to call it, uh, enlightenment direction um you know reassurance uh you know it's 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 easier in life to make mistakes when you don't understand something um and i i'm not going to pretend that i'm one of those people one of those journalists who reports a lot about um you know vulnerable uh people with trauma or you know, there are much better journalists who, uh, you know, war reporters, health reporters, uh, full-time mental health reporters. And maybe it's a better question for them. Like, you know, I, I've talked to, um, you know, I know a lot of journalists whose beat is, uh, say, sexual assault, who get run down by this kind of, um, this kind of stuff a lot. But uh, so I'm not going to lay claim to any of that kind of, uh, you know, secondary um, stress from it um yeah <laughs> Dylan what about you uh I, I mean I, I talked earlier about how Omar was my rock during this during this shoot I mean you can probably you can probably tell I mean but I I tend to respond to having more information as a, a, a reason to have more anxiety so um I think we respond differently in that way I mean the shooting the, the, the shooting Grand Prairie, where we filmed with Dennis Shinsky in the documentary and Glenn Bielich and and um, and Ali Flown, um, you know that was. <laughs> I mean, I know it's, it's I know it's not the same thing at all, but it was the closest experience that I've had to work working working up north. Really, like I was like we were with our film crew. I was with just like my my three guys. Uh, like all uh, all day, every day, it was like minus thirty the entire time. It was cold. It was dark, and we were sitting in. And we were, uh, yeah, like the the inter the interviews that we were in, engaged with were some of the most difficult, you know, uh, ninety minute conversations that I, I think I've I've really been privy to. So I mean, I, I found it. Uh, I found it really. I found, especially the, especially that 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 shooting Grand, in Grand Prairie to be very very difficult. And then, um, I mean, also, I mean, I think with uh, with uh, all all due respect and and love uh, to my compatriot Omar here, um, I, I also sat with the edit a lot a lot more. Like sat through the the editing process a lot more. So I spent 
um, a lot, a lot of time in the edit, editing room, looking at this footage over and over and over, and going to uh, go, going to work on this movie kind of every day. Um, and uh, yeah, I did, I did find, um, I, I did find that, uh, especially that 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 first month where I was putting together the the first assembly before we brought um, my, uh, the, our our wonderful editor Crystal Moss on board to uh, to help us finish it. Um, when I was going through everything and, and, and laying out that first assembly was, uh, that was, that was, um, yeah, li living with that every day was tough. But I mean, as, as I've, as I've kind of mentioned in a few other places, I mean, making this documentary was really the, the, created the, the impetus I needed to really put my, put my money where my mouth is, uh, so to speak. And, 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 uh, let's go with another cliche, uh, like walk, walk the walk. Um, if I'm if I'm going to talk the talk, so it wasn't until I was working on this documentary that I that I finally um, started going to therapy, which I mean is is just something that everybody everybody should do. That you guys are probably in this camp, Kelly. When you were asking about policy change earlier, I just thought like I mean the biggest one is just mental health should be a part of healthcare, and and uh, I hope that that's something that if I'm lucky enough to have uh, kids or grandkids, that that's something they get to enjoy. Um, well, I was going to therapy before. It was cool. <laughs> I want you to know. Long before we started making this documentary. But there you go. That's that's the reason why Omar is able to be so so stoked is because he he had a, he got the jump on this. Oh, I love that. It's a perfect soundbite, Omar. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is that I was also having a similar conversation, actually, on, on the topic of therapy, Justin and I just did an interview with one of my therapists. So we actually talked about our different viewpoints, our very different viewpoints on therapy. Wow. And it's such a fascinating, weird dynamic, though. It really, it is. And Justin's my rock. Justin is my Omar. <laughs> and, but earlier today, I was having a conversation with a friend about the moment I realized I couldn't be an on-air journalist. I was planning on J school. I used to write for newspapers. And I, that, that, that's what I thought that I wanted. And I realized when I was in university, I woke up hours after having stood and cried in front of my TV, just watching, I think it was during Charlie Hebdo and I couldn't peel. I didn't realize I was so immersed and so emotional, so affected. I'm like, I cannot be an anchor, an on-air anchor. But still today I, you know, I am still a freelance writer. So I was able to fire off something that was still very emotional for me, but put it through the filter of what it needed to be to be a political piece. And meanwhile, I'm able to discharge the emotional side as an actor. And so this question fascinates me, has always sat with me about why, you know, is it a predisposition? Is it the mindset? Is it nature versus nurture? What do you think makes you able to, or, or those who are running the beat of sexual assault continually, do you believe that it is a mindset they come with that they're able to deal with that on, as, as their occupation? Let me be the first to say that I, I would, if I was an on-air journalist, I would also be the one who is in tears way too much, like where it like loses its effect. You know what I mean? Um, uh, where it's like, 
okay, Anderson Cooper, you, you cried for Haiti, but do you have to cry for everything now? Um, I would be that version of Anderson Cooper. Um, so uh, yeah, I just, you know, and, and not even just for, for tragedies. I mean, like when I speak publicly about like immigrant stories are the ones that like touch my heart. Um, when I talk about like, uh, inspiring, um, beautiful immigrant stories like that's the stuff where I like choke up and have a hard time like getting getting through what I need to say or talking about like my father's journey in life uh, or my mother's journey in life so I just want to be clear about that I mean it's maybe one of the reasons why I became a writer is because uh you know saying it uh you know one one keystroke at a time uh is not uh emotionally taxing for me uh but it would be if I, if I had to tell these stories in front of an audience. Um, I would like to state duly for the record that uh, he has feelings. <laughs> yeah, too many. <laughs> it has been noted, yeah, good. Yes. Um, so I know we've, we've gone over time here a little bit, but if there was just one thing you wanted listeners to take away from your film, if there was one thing that watching this, you want them to be empowered and take a specific action, what would that be for each of you? Not an action, but one thing that I, I want people to understand is that this is not just a documentary about white men. Um, there's a reason why I say that, because it obviously is out of nowhere, coming out of nowhere. <laughs> um, there, is a, there is a generalization that the men in the, that the people in the work camps up north are white men. It is certainly true that they are overwhelmingly men, but it is one of the most multiracial uh, workforces that I've ever witnessed in my life. And the reason I want to put that out there is because I was on a political panel a, a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, sorry, a few months ago, and we were allowed to like gather in real life. And, um, you know, I was talking about the sort of very literal Western alienation of, uh, of these men up, up North who feel very directionless, hopeless, um, and their self-worth and self-identity has just completely been, uh, blown up. One of the other people on the, on the panel, um, you know, very wisely, you know, reminded me that this is not the uh, the summit of of alienation, and that there are a lot of indigenous women out there who would probably strongly disagree with me. And I, I was very glad to hear him say that because that is absolutely true, and that needed to be said, and I needed to be put in check there. But then I think he said that you know something to the effect of. Um, I think that there are, there's maybe more important or rather like more desperate people than, than white men or that we, we should, you know, care about more than just like the feelings of white men. And I didn't have the opportunity to say anything then. Um, but it, it struck me as odd because the whole panel was about breaking Alberta stereotypes. And he wasn't, he is a university of Alberta expert on how the, version of Albertans and the reality of Albertans don't match up. And here he was perpetuating that stereotype. Um, the subjects in our documentary, yes, are white men. Those are the subjects who wanted to talk with us. 
Um, but I can I can tell you that there were people who were not white men who had died by suicide that uh, we wanted to, you know, if we could get the access and, and the blessings of their family that we wanted to tell their stories, we couldn't. I could tell you from my experience of being up north and researching this in the work camps, it is not a strictly white workforce. It is uh, the race and ethnicity is is very much separate from the mental health crisis here. The, um, the biggest thing that I hope people would uh, would start having a conversation about after watching this documentary, especially in this uh, moment in, in time, is, uh, is, is that I think we need to fundamentally re-examine how we uh, think about work uh, in, in our society. I mean, so many of the mental health maladies that, um, that are present in the, in the lives of the people we talk to in this documentary and that still continue to to have an influence um, up north um, are, are just relate directly to this this oh, this overarching view that we have that that productivity is more important than than people's lives, um, and that's and yeah that's that's what we've all d- decided collectively to to uh, to build a society on, and um, I, I mean I was really hoping that the I, I mean I think the pandemic has provided a lot of reflection. For people in terms of the nature of work and how much work is really necessary, where uh, where they can where people can work, um, but uh, it doesn't look like it's going to lead to the fundamental restructuring of our society that I was hoping it uh, it might. Um, although I don't know, I mean, it, this as 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 we're talking now in early June, um, there there's still a lot of there's still a lot of upheaval going on. So, so we'll see, but I, I just, I really think that the future of mental health is, is intrinsically linked with the future of how we think about, um, yeah, how we think about work and, and productivity. I mean, serve, serve has been an opportunity to kind of test universal basic income. Probably, I mean, nobody in office probably wants to say that except for like, I don't know, maybe like, you know, my NDP representative from Edmonton Strathcona, who's the only the only NDP representative in Edmonton, so she or in, in all of Alberta, so maybe she can she can kind of like go nuts and feel free. But um, but uh, certainly, like I, I just I it, it seems it seems so clear to me, and if that was too big of a conversation to have um, in the context of like this forty-four minute documentary um, about this very specific issue. But I mean, that's that's what I think about. When when, um, when when I think about what what this movie seems to be saying, you know, like why 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 do people take it for granted that they have to work this much? Why do people have such a hard time uh, feeling any sense of identity outside of just being a provider, just being a you know, just being a a, a, a worker? Um, well, it's because that's the only thing our culture values, um, and uh, I mean, as, as particularly as it relates to to uh, to men and and our. our our ideas of hegemonic masculinity and 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 I, and I know that these these attitudes are starting to change but um yeah that's 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 the big one oh awesome. man i wish that we had so many more hours everything especially with those last answers i could go on for another day just asking you more questions i'm so grateful that you both took the time to sit down and chat with us thank you so much i yeah. hope that maybe we do get to reconnect again and 
congratulations on some powerful media that you created. Oh, it's uh, thanks for giving us a place to talk about it some more. Appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Hope you're uh, keeping well and look forward to, um, to keeping an eye on what you, what you guys uh, are up to in the future. Likewise, gents. Thanks again so much for all your time. This has been phenomenal. Thank you. Cool, cool, cool. So uh, I love, I love how you're laughing at me right now. I- uh, just the cool, cool, cool. Like you're like interviews done. Cool, cool, cool. Great. Moving on. As he's like talking about, oh god, all these super serious things and being a mental health hipster and all that stuff. It does. Does my cool, cool, cool not seem like I care? Because have you never seen Community? I'm. What's that character's don't name? Don't watch Community. Oh my god, whatever. My community lovers out there will understand the reference. I care very deeply. It's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. I love the fact that these two documentary filmmakers came from very different perspectives and how their, I hate the word journey, I hate that I'm using it again, their paths intertwined and it was interesting that omar was the rock and seemingly you know remaining more objective out of the two but that he was the hipster of therapy he said he was going to therapy before it was cool and that dylan started going to therapy i as maybe not necessarily a consequence of being a part of this film but it was interesting that he had not gone to therapy beforehand so just jumping into my cool thing here i actually went and looked up the journalist's code of ethics. So that is my one cool thing. There's actually a code of ethics. It is to seek truth and to report it. It is to minimize harm, act independently, and be accountable and transparent, which I think is something that not only journalists should have to adhere to, that seems like a pretty good set of rules for ethics that everyone could abide by. And so that's my one cool thing, is the code of ethics that we should all be following. I like that. I like that it kind of brings it around back to the first half of our interview when we were talking about the ethics and journalism a lot more so in the first episode that we released of our conversation with them. It also speaks so much to that idea of the contagion effect. It's fascinating that Omar brings up Robin Williams' suicide and how U.S. coverage and Canadian coverage on his suicide how suicide is covered and how that affects those who are consuming that media. Interesting, too, how much things have changed from the past, because he was talking about the call-in show and how that's all changed to text messages. What do you think that says about us, Gales? Ugh. You respond differently. You speak differently when you have time to compose a message that is written when you don't necessarily have to immediately respond. Like, even right now, trying to find the right words because we're doing a podcast and we don't have time necessarily to write out every sentence but I mean we could we could do a scripted show guys this has been scripted the whole way through oh my god stop (laughs) could you imagine wow how organically we deliver this even though it was scripted congrats to us I'm an actor (laughs) it's just one long plug for hey we're actors (laughs) um I think it's fascinating that it kind of puts a little bit more responsibility in this particular example that you're bringing up where Omar spoke about that radio show and having a woman who was looking for answers, looking for support, looking for solutions in regards to her own husband who is suicidal, turning to a call-in show that was a panel of journalists, former oil workers and a radio show host, 
people in those situations don't know where to turn. We do, we'll, we'll plug again that crisis hotline that they share in the doc, but the fact that we are turning to Twitter and Instagram and we live so much in a social media world where we're not necessarily connecting face to face and we're we're looking for truths that we're expecting journalists to provide. And that is the foundation of journalism is trying to uncover truth. Now, yes, we're all searching for that capital T truth, but every story is going to be a lowercase t truth that creates the mosaic of how we guide ourselves. It's interesting, too, when he compares the Robin Williams stuff with the what's happening in the States, how <laughs> under the current Presidente, um, like, fake news has become such a catchword when I think most journalists do try to abide by this code of ethics and, and they do try to basically serve up the facts. Um it's interesting how that's manifested so quickly in today's culture when there is no face-to-face interaction anymore and it's so easy to just attack someone blindly through a text message or a comment or to text into a, a show like that and basically ask a filmmaker for the resources when he's not necessarily the expert, just like we're not the experts on mental health. We have a podcast about mental health and we love talking about it. It's something that we're both very passionate about, but I don't have a degree in psychology. I don't like, I I do literature reading and stuff on my own free time, but it's not something that I've dedicated my life's profession to. Mm hmm. I've definitely dedicated a great deal of my life to studying psychology and philosophy and did study it academically in university, but it's not the entirety of my life path or my occupational endeavor. I'm fascinated with it. I am not a mental health expert. Neither of us are. We do this because we too are seeking answers. And as far as the south of the border coverage goes as far as media in general i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go south of the border i'm gonna keep it general i'm actually gonna keep it on the idea of general versus the detailed because our social media platforms are the internet the algorithms that show us what we're looking at on facebook and twitter and instagram are all created with the awareness that anger is what can hook an audience member which is so unfortunate, which is very true, which brings it back to the, if, if it bleeds, it leads. That balance between being too graphic with your detail or being detailed enough so that you are relatable is a fine balance that you have to find. It's that tightrope walk that you have to conduct as a journalist or as a, a truth seeker, a, an art maker. So just how much detail do you really need to know or share to actually understand and relate to another human being's story. Uh, that's that's the that's the journey. That's the goal. Uh, not related to my one cool thing. My one cool thing is coffee grounds. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Here's why. Here's why. I know it's you're just assuming cool because it's Kaylee. It's coffee. Uh, yes. However, my cousin, who is such a better arborist than I am, <laughs> wanted my coffee grounds. Or I was talking about the fact that she gets all she gets leftover coffee grounds from her coffee shops and that when she started asking for them, it was as if it was such an ordinary thing. They're like, yeah, sure. They, they keep them and they give out coffee grounds to people because so many more people are now using it for their plants, putting them in uh, their home gardens and potted plants. And 
So I've started saving mine. I haven't actually started putting them in my plants because I'm still learning how to be a good plant mom, but I've been saving them to give to my cousin. And I have learned that some of the benefits of using coffee grounds as fertilizer is that it adds organic material to the soil, which improves drainage, water retention, and aeration in the soil. All things that apparently your plant babies need. So I'm learning. I think that's great that my increasingly destructive caffeine intake levels are going to go to some sort of good, good use, use down the yeah. road. Yeah. Reduce, reuse, future. recycle. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Mother Nature's smiling on you. <laughs> Somebody's got my back. Uh, while the coffee grounds are going to help them plant babies, we also have that number that can help people who are looking for a proper support system in Alberta in particular. The crisis hotline that Digging in the Dirt offers at the end of the film is 1-877-303-2642. That's Alberta's mental health line. Again, it's 1-877-303-2642. For information on everything related to the documentary, Omar and Dylan, and anything else we've discussed today, check out the show notes. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye, Felicia. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, Bella. I guess it's Bella because you're a woman. That's I know, awkward. and I said guys and whatever. Just take it. It's cool, uh, cool, cool. Goodbye, they. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also leave us a review. Which sincerely helps us. Which we love. Come hang out with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And send us your questions, recommendations, and cool things at we're totally not okay at gmail.com. Learn more about how you can lend your voice to this podcast and join us on an episode by looking at the link in our description. More information can be found at anchor.fm. Thanks for listening to We're Totally Not Okay. But that's okay.